Welcome to Going Off Track. My name is Jonah. I'm Stephen. And I'm Brad. And we are very excited today to be joined on the podcast by Emil Amos, who you may know from his band Grails, who just released um, Temporary Residence, just released uh, Black Tower Prophecies, volumes four, five, and six, um, which is a collection of 12 inches and bonus stuff um, on CD and the packaging. And music is really awesome. Emil also plays in a band called Holy Sons and a band called Ohm. And I learned of him through Duncan Trussell's podcast, The Duncan Trussell Family Hour, because they are very good friends, which we talked about a lot, and hung out in college, and he's a frequent guest on Duncan's podcast as well. I'm amazed that you can remember all those bands. I'm always yeah, amazed that you can remember all those bands. He was in a lot of bands. I actually sort of <laughs> sort of forgot he was in Ohm until they like brought it up halfway through the podcast. I was like, oh yeah, man. Like I just associate him with so many things that it's hard to keep it all straight. But he is a super interesting guy and uh we talk a lot about his music and his his time in india and he tells us one of the craziest stories i think that's ever been told on this podcast about being in the ganges river and of course i missed it yeah i don't want to ruin it for you guys but uh yeah steven unfortunately couldn't be here for this one no um steven can't read a calendar and emil uh was you know just happened to be here for a little while so um i'm psyched that we we worked it out and uh, got to have them in. And if you haven't checked out Grails, um, you should check it out because they are a pretty incredible band. I've been listening to them a I lot. I think we're getting lately. close to releasing a Going Off Track compilation. We should, man. We should. Curate it. On vinyl? No, cassette. <laughs> I'm so I couldn't even get that out. <laughs> How awful would that be? Nah, man. Could curate something, put it together. Yeah, I think it would be that would be cool. I mean, um I know nothing about how to do that, but I'm sure we know of a couple I, people I think, who do. I think a lot of these bands are doing fine <laughs> without our help, but Oh, we'd have to pay them? Oh then fuck it. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe we could do something. I don't know. If you have any ideas, let us know. Um, How about a block party? Going off track block party where we just... I like that idea. Cut off the block out here in front of rubber tracks and um, and get them to pay for it. No, wait. No, that wouldn't work. <laughs> yeah, we could do something we like that. We get all the bands that have been on the show to, to play. Yeah, every single one. It'd be hard to get that minor threat group to do it, but I don't know. Lyle, if you're listening. <laughs> we could get Lyle to sit in with the, you know, the minor talk. threat cover band. <laughs> But uh, now our guest, Emo Amos. Today we have uh, Emo Amos from um, Grails, Holy Sons, and I became familiar with you. I knew about Grails and Holy Sons, but through Duncan's podcast, actually, who you've been a guest on a lot. Yeah, yeah. It's. I feel like. He's my he's my inadvertent manager or something. Yeah, in, in that way. Well, we never. I don't think we ever thought this would this would happen. Like we would, uh, you know, what we thought about in private in college would ever be some sort of public, you know, up for consumption. You know, these ideas would be like interesting to anybody. But um, but here we are. You know, and it, and it's like worked out to some degree. So we can have like odd public conversations and people seem to be interested i can't it's it's hard to believe really it is but it's weird because i feel like they're the conversations that i wish i had in college that i feel like i didn't really i don't know if i didn't go to the right school or i didn't wasn't friends with the right people but yeah you have to understand we went to a school a farm school with 700 people in it in like a 
the spiritual, like, you know, the Native American heritage of the, of the Blue Ridge Parkway and like the, the particular area. It's like the birth of, uh, all country music, Jimmy Rogers and like the Leuven brothers or the Delmore brothers. All these people came from there. And so the, the energy, like Asheville is all about like new age, you know, energy, you know, interpretations and shit. And so, like, whether we knew it or not, we just went off to college, I think, to make our parents um, happy. You know, we weren't trying to get anything done, necessarily. But the rumor was that it was kind of a, it was kind of like a, a drug hippie school out in the woods where you sort of just, it's like totally autonomous. So as far as colleges go, it sounded tolerable, I guess, to us, I think. But we didn't know each other before that. We met kind of randomly. He tells a story on one of his podcasts. So you guys met in college? Mm-hmm. Okay. Do you guys went to Warren Wilson? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't I don't want to, like, say anything too bad or too good about the place necessarily. But, I understand. Um, <laughs> but so we, yeah, I think we were just kind of recognizing some sort of... Um, I, well, the way I remember it was like a particular woundedness about each other. Like when you see someone from far away and you relate to them kind of how bad they're doing. Like they're not assimilating correctly into um, society. And so you develop this weird affection for them. And, and we started to – I can't remember exactly everything. Like he remembers details that I, I can't remember, but we just started to – bond on this weird we got really into secret societies somehow i can't can't remember why or how but that was that was like this strange uh bonding point and then he actually hung out with the Hare krishnas all the time and he started trying to get me to come and check it out and it's kind of becomes a very very long long story from there where we went to india and kind of imploded in so many ways, and then came back, and he went off to L.A., and I went to Portland. Okay. That's a simple version. Gotcha. And you're based in Portland now? I was for 14 years, um, and I just moved here like three weeks ago. Nice. Oh, yeah, I wasn't sure if you were here permanently or just here for the summer. I guess I'm not really sure either, but I don't... um, I'm kind of just have this... I think I'm realizing maybe I'm in some sort of... uh, happy life crisis where I need to like redefine myself. And so it seemed like a good way to do it. Remove myself from like something that I was just way too repetitive and, and ultimately too easy. Um, so I had to figure out a way to look at myself in the mirror again without just sort of like everything blending into itself in kind of a, it's kind of a hedonist like uh, boredom out there in Portland. Everything was just too, too easy and quiet, and quality of life was too good. Yeah, I was out there in December with Vanessa, and I had so much fun. But I felt like I was like I feel like. Well, first I wouldn't have to work that much, so I felt like I would get really lazy. So I was like, my rent would be so insanely cheap compared to here. But also, like it does feel really small. Like I did feel like I might it might get repetitive or something i don't know i just feel like being here there's so many options even though like i don't i do the same three things that's reassuring somehow yeah it it 
I'm sure people like can do the same thing here, but I, I was just, I just go to the same place. I'm like really ritualistic. So I was just going to the same places and doing the same things for like 14 years. Right, so right. I was, I had to throw a wrench in that, you know, just for my own development. But, um, but as a place, I mean, it's just so hospitable that it's ironic that being so happy would end up being boring. But a couple of times in my life, uh, this, I guess, being the second time I've like gotten the first time I got so happy, I just couldn't stand it at one point. I just got so bored of everything being perfect all the time. Uh, it's around, I think it was 98 or so when around, around when we went to, to India, but we were both going through these, um, Duncan and I were both going through these like sort of massive transformations. Mine happened really fast and his kind of happened a little slower, but these sort of religious, um, transformations. Like Duncan was the only person I've ever met in my life that was like overtly religious. Like that was like a weird, that was an exotic commodity to me. I'd never met anybody that was genuinely religious, which is, it's a weird thing to even think about. Right. What does that mean? You know? Does anybody come to your mind when you think of people who are religious? Because people who call themselves religious, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about someone you encounter that like, like he says sometimes like changes the orbit of your development or something like that. No, I can't think of anyone. Isn't that weird? Yeah, that is weird. It's it's kind of disturbing really. (laughs) (laughs) But very honest. Right. So was this India trip, was that the one where he had that guy on who was writing the book, The Answer to the Riddle is Me or something? Yeah. Did okay. you, have you, have you heard about that much? I pre, I remember I listened to that episode, him talking about the experience on Duncan's podcast. Right. And, yes. Uh, and then I like pre-ordered the book on Amazon, but it looked like it wasn't coming out for a really long time or something. I think, yeah, I think it comes out, um, I think it either comes out early 2014 or or in a couple months, but, um, um, (laughs) it's funny. None of us knew each other before college. So then, then, uh, Dave was, uh, he was like slightly older. He was a RD, which is like, you know, the person that keeps the younger partiers in line in, in the dorm. Right. And he, he lived and worked in the dorm across from me. It was kind of known as like the party, the party, the male party dorm, like the most like animal house or something. And, um, I was like, not, I was like public enemy number one <laughs> or something. And, um, I have memories of, of being in like a dorm room party on some, you know, Tuesday night or something. And the RD comes around and knocks on your door if you're too loud and people can't study and stuff. And, and, um, the door, opened up and it was Dave and he was just, you know, it's just like a horrible job, you know? And I was, I had a bottle of, uh, whiskey in one hand and a beer in the other. And I had my mouth open (laughs) and I was pouring them both in and like, probably like screaming some obscenity. And, um, and my eyes met with him and he was, you know, shocked at just kind of 
I think people just, he just probably thought I was a really sad person. But um, so, so we were kind of like, you know, I was somebody that he had to like get in line or something. And then I think a couple of years went by and he kind of humanized me and realized that I wasn't so bad. I got in a lot of trouble. Um, they tried to kick me out of the, sh- the school. And uh, then I found one teacher who me and me and Duncan talk a lot about uh, that kind of, he was kind of my guide into like how to like express myself and, and figure out how to like get decent grades and uh, things started to work out. And all the time me and Duncan were hanging out, we were sort of, one of the main things we did was these prank calls um, that were in our little world. There were these legendary things that, that, you know, at the time I thought were pretty, cutting edge and we're certainly like more like forward thinking than the jerky boys or something some like you know and I thought that Duncan was like probably the funniest person I'd ever met in my life and he because he's one of those people that never laughs you know when he's doing it's and, and the the stuff is coming off of his head in a way where he doesn't even think it's funny and he can't control it and it's very very there's some sort of spiritual gift, you know, but the person themselves, they don't really value it necessarily. So you're watching this, this extreme talent that they're not in control of, you know, and it's just kind of fascinating. So we're doing those, those calls, which we recorded all of them, but he actually doesn't want to release now because he thinks politically in a sense that they're, they're too mean spirited and would, just or just not saying something very great about humanity, <laughs> right? Um, but yeah. Anyway, and then and then me, him, and Dave at one point kind of came together on this going to India idea, and uh, it was kind of a random thing. And we went off all three of us by ourselves, but when we stayed for three months, we lived for at least a month in Dharamsala where, you know, the Dalai Lama lives. And then um, we, me and Duncan kind of just had some sort of a neurotic implosion at the end. And then, and we had kind of a fight. It was pretty hilarious. And then, and Dave, for some reason, had more ambitions about going south, which we hadn't, we've stayed mostly in the north of India. And then... So we came home. I think he came home for like a couple of weeks, went right back. And then what happened to him in his book happened right after, um, which is a story that, I mean, I totally find fascinating and, and relate to in a way. He actually saw me go through my own little miniature version of, of that one night in uh, on the Ganges, actually. But um, his was like, immense and prolonged in this way where, I mean, some of the details of that story are just, they're like Jacob's Ladder. They're just like totally horrifying, you know, making love to your girlfriend and you don't know who she is or where she's come from or, you know, just like really bizarre insights, you know, into his memory loss. And like, he still, I think he still doesn't have a year of his life, you know, that he can remember. Um, But anyway, his book's coming out. And uh, I'm I'm excited to read it just because he he's a, he's a, he's an interesting thinker that'll like draw out the the really uncomfortable aspects of like 
you know, identity and like just losing it completely and then trying to regain, regain like your footing psychologically under the heading of like your name and your, the concept of you. I think he'll, he'll do a really good job of that, you know? Yeah. I can't wait to read it. That sounds incredible. Totally. Um, the, the particular thing I'm thinking of was we had, we had a couple different, um, just really exotic, strange situations, but he, I guess we had gone, we were in the Ganges and, and we, we decided we had to take the traditional, you know, rowboat trip down the Ganges. And so there were a couple of French girls, um, that didn't really speak English sitting on the, uh, on the dock where they sort of, they sort of shovel in the bodies. Well, the the basic idea is that like the sadhus, you know, like the, the older gurus who die, uh, get to be put in the Ganges, the Holy river. And, um, they might like tie a rock to their foot or something to try to keep them down and submerged and, and young and young babies get put in there because, you know, they're innocent. And then everybody else gets burned. Um, not everybody else, I suppose, but like a lot of people get burned on the dock on these piles of, of wood. And so part of the obligatory India trip is that you just, you're going to go see the Taj Mahal, you're going to go see this and that. And so this part of the obligatory trip, you know, you go down the Ganges. And so part of that obligatory like element is that you do the religious drugs because the religious drugs are kind of even controlled by the, the, these little government stands, because I think it's just so assumed and ingrained into that, into Varanasi and the culture that you, um, the government, you know, there's no point in them trying to ban it. They, they sell it themselves. So you, you go, and I guess we got like special opium cookies and different, you know, I guess, well, they, they pull this gum off of long leaves called bang, like B-H-A-N-G. And it's, uh, it looks like silly putty and it's like dark, dark green. And you go and you buy the, the balls and then you go back to your hotel and you can get your cook to, to make you a bang lassi or some sort of, some sort of drink to consume it. And so we had had way too much of this stuff and didn't know until it was too late. And then I think I ate some cookies and was, was getting in the boat with the French girls and, and still like ducking down and smoking opium. Cause I thought, you know, that the bong wasn't working. And I, I guess I was terrified of not being inebriated. So, <laughs> so we're going down the, uh, the river. Actually, what the first thing that happened was our boat dipped into the water, which is, it's so uh, thick brown. Like you've never seen anything like, it's almost like a mud lava color or something. And we immediately hit a a dead, a floating dead baby, you know? And I had to tell the guys to kind of look the other way because they were, they were a little more disgusted by that 
kind of stuff at the time. And so, um, it's pretty disgusting. I mean, it, it yeah. actually had like, uh, I think things like living on it and in it, you know? And, uh, anyway, but that's the, you know, that's your embracing this, the natural aspects of, of life here. And so you're, uh, we started, floating down the river and on the on the right side is the far side where um nobody lives and so somehow the bodies uh float back up over there and there's these packs of wild dogs and so they they eat the people in front of you there and then you're hitting the bodies in the water and then on the left they're burning them and around this point you know we're having this kind of funny experience because I had this handheld tape player I always carried with, carried with me and I was playing George Jones' greatest hits and it was uh, I'm a people and like white lightning and she thinks I still care and there's all these kind of, it was just this moment where there were, there were cinematic moments, you know, where you felt like you could see the helicopter view, like pan up over you and, and your life was like this hilarious moment, you know, like this time in Agra where we were like, me and Duncan got in the uh, rickshaw drivers places and like we're racing with the rickshaw drivers in, in the back, like like moments where it's like, it's just a cinematic moment you're and it seems hilarious and you can kind of see it on a screen in your mind and um we're like going down the the river with the George Jones playing and um we started getting attacked by this uh black animal uh with like this horseshoe kind of uh head that it looked almost like a floating cow that was really fast and could like come up around the boat and knock the whole thing so we were like you know it's something out of some sort of satanic you know epcot center thing and uh and we were yeah we were getting attacked by this black beast um and around that point we uh we real the drugs hit like super super bad and you know you start thinking you're just going to fall in even though you're fine you know it's every your your equilibrium everything is just completely uh destroyed and you you're kind of i mean nothing looks real anymore because people burning in a fire it just it just seems like a movie like it just doesn't seem like it could be possibly real and and i definitely had whatever you call some sort of um psychological implosion or something where I couldn't function at some point and didn't know what to do to the point where this, this, uh, this very, very, very small Indian man, like incredibly muscular, like rode us back upstream and took us back to where we came from. And I fell off of the boat and kind of caught myself on David. And he, he started to realize how, how bad this was, like how, how, how far gone we were. And, but I had, I had gone way, way too far and we were walking back to the room and underneath a bridge, there was all these people performing this, this kind of witchy rite and Duncan and Dave kind of got sucked into it and they were chanting and um, like banging tambourines and kind of 
uh, summoning some force of the universe. And I was just like, I got to go. I just got to go like reset and like, and, and clear my mind. And I went back to the hotel room and I laid down on the bed, which was this huge fluffy bed. And the power went out is what happened uh, across the city. And I, there was no light and I was locked in this tiny hot room and I tried to think of what the building looked like or like how it faced the street, you know, all the things you just to get your, your context, you know, and I couldn't think of that. And I tried to think of like the stairwell or like what the door guy looked like or anything, you know, and I couldn't think of anything and I couldn't, I I started to try to think of like what I looked like or anything. And I just, I had nothing, you know, and then I tried to kind of feel my, my body and I couldn't feel anything and, and try to sense where the walls were or the definition of like how, where I start and where I stop. And, and that's, that was all gone. And then, um, I was just kind of, I had a sense that that was just like a light, like a dim little light just in the dark in, in the, in the entire universe, you know, and that there was nothing and no bounds and no sort of, um, there was nothing. And so it was totally horrible. Like, like there, there was a moment where it was okay. And then I realized that I was sort of, I was sort of dead or going to die or some part of my brain told me get out of there or do something about it. And, uh, somebody eventually opened the door or something because I was locked in and then I, I fell down a huge set of stairs and ended up at a locked gate like a ape, you know, in a twilight zone, just shaking the, the locked gate because they had locked us in to keep out hobos or something. And I was just looking out of these bars just thinking what am I going to do? You know, I, I, I don't know where I am or who I am. And, and I looked down and there was a little tiny Indian man on the stone floor and he smiled at me and he just told me, come, come down, come lie with me, you know? And I was like, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> and, and I, I woke up the next day and, um, I wasn't happy anymore. Like as a person, like things changed a little bit. Like I was really psychologically, I I couldn't believe I could be destroyed so easily, you know, like in one night like that, just totally mentally shattered. Um, So anyway, David, David's story is like that over the course of two years, you know, Which is not cool. That's not, I mean, because his is attributed to a drug, you know, that the government sanctions, you know. Have you thought about writing a book at all about your, maybe not, I mean, that experience is incredible, but just maybe a broader or anything like that? I used to work on a book like five or six years ago, like 
all the time, actually. It was about, um, it was about how I had a, uh, a guru when I was 15 or so. Uh, I started, I had, I had a guru and we were like, uh, it wasn't like a normal guru. It was like a, a, a evil guru. And, and we were like, I like to think we were like, uh, Rimbaud and Verlaine, like two, like, just like completely fucked up people on the outskirts of, of society, like laughing and kind of, uh, you know, performing magical rites late into the night and, and existing, uh, as sort of on another planet, uh, and having having like a really amazing creative good time but but it kind of went sour at one point but um i used to write a book about that i think it was called my best friend or something like that but um i turned it in once to a publisher and and uh i just we'd lost touch and i and i gave up on it because honestly it's just writing is way too hard it's super super hard because it's so discouraging rereading after like the the thousandth time you've read something. It's it's almost impossible to um, know if it's worth anybody's time anymore. It's just so dizzying editing and rereading. And music is much more obvious what's good and bad. If that makes any sense, have you written much? A little bit. I've done a lot of both, and uh, yeah, I guess that you're right. I don't know. I feel like I get that way about music also too. Like I, you know what I mean? Like I do feel like the more I listen to stuff and then I change stuff and then I go back and I'm like, Oh, the thing I was doing the first time was the best thing. It doesn't, the simplest thing for me at least. I know what you're talking about. I've, uh, most musicians I've known are like that and they, and they seem really conflicted and I kind of, I don't know what to think or why, why I'm different in that way. Like uh, my friend who has a lot, a really big hang up about that. I think he, he often used to quote Lou Barlow and saying that, um, some, I think he said something like my only talent is finishing a song. Like that's what I'm good at. I can finish. And I, if you think about like playing pool, that is the main talent, you know, I can play pool really well, but I can't finish for some reason. I, I get somehow caught up in my mind at some point. I stop understanding the concept of winning or something and and closing the deal. If you could be, if you're a realtor or something, that that would be all that matters. You know, that's exactly. the point. You know, so I know what you mean. Well, you also have such different outlets for music. I feel like. Holy Sons and, and Grails are so kind of sonically different that you sort of have both of those areas, I guess, where it's not always the same kind of voice. Yeah, I, I mean, those two, I have two other ones too. Oh, really? Okay. But but those two are like, there's got to be some weird German word for this. <laughs> Russian, actually, it's got to be Russian. Uh, but those those two bands, I feel like, are not particularly born of of failure, but born of like such obscurity, um, that they fermented in this, this, uh, boiling pot of being able to do whatever you want. You know, it's kind of like how we, we generally think of 
music in the eighties and SST and stuff. You know, it's like you you look back now and you no one can figure out why it was so varied and it was so original. It's almost impossible to wrap your head around that group of bands just being themselves and being so unique. It 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 seems mathematically impossible. And yet scientifically all we have to understand is that they didn't really think anyone would care. So following that logic, you know, that is an extremely uh fruitful context to be born of, you know. Uh, I mean, it's just across the board. I mean, true, the true like punk spirit of, of that time, I guess. I mean, it could have, you could be applying this to like hip hop in the eighties or something too, but things that were raw and totally fresh and uncontained and just sort of like wildly knew no bounds and didn't, nobody knew what it was or where it was going, you know, um, you would think that, if that's a state of mind, you know, that we could just, someone in 2013 could just pursue that state of mind to make great art, you know. Well, I think I'll just extricate myself from this, this, this cultural context and I will, I will research myself or, or, you know, whatever you want to call it. And then I'll come back kind of like Zarathustra or something, you know, and I will, I will deliver the goods of what I have learned. But for some reason, people just seem, I think going back to your point, things are so nice that they just become lazy so quickly. You know, they never really, it's like a rat in a cage with a heroin button. They just keep hitting the the button. There's nothing else in life, you know. Why would you run on the, the wheel? Why would you build yourself a better little rat home just keep hitting the heroin button you know <laughs> no exactly but i think the sst point is totally true and really interesting i feel like so many people associate them with black flag which obviously but i mean people forget like dinosaur jr like sonic youth like the minutemen like all those bands on the same label that time is is pretty incredible yeah meat puppets, meat puppets. saccharin trust and it's just yeah the further yeah you realize the the breadth of like of like expression there it's it's uh baffling really but i don't know i mean do you do you see yourself as kind of like cuz i know you're into like hardcore and stuff but so do you see yourself as like it's kind of funny it's like an anachronistic expression in some ways or or you have to, it's a historical understanding you know to be in that genre. I don't feel like you necessarily just drop into it in 2013 and just like, I mean, you could, I'm sure young kids do. They just like see guitar hero and they're like, I like to play fast, right. you know, or whatever and jump right in. But generally, I mean, because it's a, it came from kind of a ghetto mentality or something They're they're sort of like, you're supposed to know, like, what the rules are, some yes. shit, yes. which is, you know, a trapping in itself and kind of why it threatens to die, you know, all the time, I guess, if that's a fair assessment. No, I think it is. Well, it's interesting. We had this band on last month, Deaf Heaven, and they're, uh, they're kind of like 
people they got a lot of shit because they're like sort of in the black metal world they're like a hardcore band they're uh but they have those type of like drumming and vocal influences and people get we're, like we're really polarizing about it people either really like them or they're like these guys are hipsters like and like just trying to do whatever to negate it and it's so weird because i feel like hardcore a little bit too it the genre itself can be so inherently formulaic that if you step outside people are like will get shut off They'll be like oh this isn't the thing i like so it needs to be familiar enough but i feel like it kind of goes against like having any kind of voice or or innovation like it's it's really strange to have a genre it's not like jazz or something where it's like you can the idea is to like take this and go somewhere with it well that's ironic because if i don't know how much how many jazz or dudes you've known but they're the worst they are the worst but there's a big i mean i know obviously herbie hancock and stuff there's a big Nietzsche and Buddhism kind of jazz mm. connection. Mm-hmm. Probably, yeah. I th- you might be thinking of uh, Narada, Michael Walden, and and like definitely through the spiritual elements of like Mahavishnu Orchestra and all that stuff for right. sure. You no, know, I know what you're talking about completely. You're t- but that gets into another conversation, which I think has to do with with improv music. Which it seems to me, on the face of it, just something like that's more about the practice than watching it. That's a value judgment. But from my perspective as a musician, it's like the difference between playing basketball and watching basketball. The point ultimately, originally, was to do it, not to just like memorize stats and like have a favorite player and paint your face and shit. You know? Right. But that, but yeah, jazz is like kind of a different category for sure. But but I know I know what you're talking about. Something based theoretically on exploration, right? Versus hardcore, which is like uh, almost like a prison compared to that. Yes, you know? yes, exactly. But I do think that this might sound a little well, a little ass kissy, but it doesn't I guess. But I do think temporary residents like Jeremy and Anna and Alfie and those guys, like what they're doing over there, I feel like with their roster and they're kind of the packaging they do and that stuff. Like I, it's not like SST, but I do feel like I know when I get something from them that it will not sound, I don't know what it will sound like necessarily, but I will probably find it at least engaging. Yeah. That's, that's an interesting point because, um, Jeremy and Anna, they might be like, they might be the only people I, I, cause I think I work with like five different labels and most of them are here but um that they're the main people that um i come into contact with that can drop like references into normal conversation you know that aren't even like outrageous about like anna brings up breadwinner which is like one of my favorite bands because because they played chapel Hill a lot you know um when i was a little kid and I don't know why. I still I still can listen to that band. That's a that's weird though to me that like something can stand up so so well and also have no one kind of know about it really to be a dead language ultimately. And you're right. Like those the, Jeremy and, and Anna understand that flashpoint and it's like it's just as real as it was then and then most labels though and most like underground 
the trajectory generally is like largely lost that plot, like for better or worse. It just, you know, most people don't, I guess most people don't identify with hardcore that much. You know what I mean? Like, although it paved maybe a lot of the like touring routes of the U.S. and like paved a lot of initially even like maybe the indie rock industry, um, people don't know or care or, I mean, it's kind of like a thing of the past to a lot of people, you know? I think it's also looked on as like maybe juvenile to an extent or like, uh, I don't know, like not, we can clean that up. Don't worry about it. It's totally no big deal. Uh, like that was, it's for kids or something, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe like, I don't know if you know, but I, I, I broke my arm skateboarding. I guess it was last year. Our, I'm in this other band called Ohm. Oh yeah, of course. Right. Well, and what is the fourth band? Just so it's we... called Lilacs and Champagne. It's that one's. It's. I mean, your point was right on. Like they're all four totally different, but the newer one uh, is kind of like instrumental hip hop or something like that. Okay. And so. Anyway, Ohm's record came out last year, and um, it was a day it came out, and I went skateboarding to get some exercise around the block because uh, kind of, it was my job. The tour was coming up, and I, I needed to, like, even just respiratory, like, I needed to, like, get ready to do a lot of fucking work, you know? And uh, I was just paying attention to traffic going really pretty pretty fast but like it, I wasn't doing anything stupid but the, there was some the handle of a grate uh in the sidewalk was up and I it just like threw me super super hard and uh once we had to put up on the internet which I was a little nervous about cuz I'd never canceled a a big tour um once we had to put it up that it was like the arm was broken. A skateboard. You get specific about it because you can't. You can't just say undisclosed right. reasons. It just sounds really strange. Um, you would be surprised at how many kids. Or I don't. I can't count. I mean, it wasn't like a boatload, but it was like there was kids that were like kind of disgusted that I got on a skateboard. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Are you serious? Yeah, they like there there was one in particular <laughs> that um when I say disgusted I mean like they were shocked, you know? Yeah. Like and uh there was one kid in particular that came on the Ohm Ohm Facebook page that was like it wasn't like he said like you should be shot, you know, but it was pretty close. It was like you know, just saying I was like an indescribable, you know, like, like a level of loser that he just couldn't, he couldn't believe that I would, after 20 years old, I think was the cutoff he made, <laughs> get on a skateboard. And, uh, I was, I was just like, wow, like, like, how can you even, you know, have such a strong opinion about that? And then also kind of co come on the band's page is a little strange, you know, cause what's really the point? Like, why are you, why are you there? What do you, why, why? Right, you're not going to open a dialogue that way. It just, or just like, you'd think that's for somewhere else, you know, for right, like right. A, another place, but like, <laughs> I don't know. Is it to, to go to the Nike page and complain about their shoelaces? Not only do you look like 
mentally ill, but you kind of are already like within, you're putting yourself under the umbrella of the culture anyway at that point because you're, you're the guy that writes on the Nike page every right, day. So right. you're kind of like already, I don't know. It just seems like a very small, small way of living, you know? <laughs> um, anyway, that, yeah, that really surprised me. But, uh, I think going back to your point, like, um, yeah, there's, there, there's a lot of, just like in hardcore, there's a lot of like, um, true believer, like sentiment out there that, that like, people would still probably physically fight you over if you, you know, like when I was a kid, it was like you couldn't wear certain shit or it meant supposedly you were a Nazi or something. Right. You know, you'd get you, your jaw broken if you, if you had the wrong shoelaces on or something. It's like, it's always like, you know, with any cult or, or like a Christian on the train yesterday that was babbling about, you know, page whatever where somebody you know ate a shrub and turned into a goat you know and and some kid was memorizing it's there's always like this obscure arbitrary knowledge you must memorize or scientology or whatever you know it's just part of the rules of a cult you know no definitely but getting i'm curious so getting back to that kid um who's giving you shit about breaking your arm i mean do you think any of that is generational in the sense that like He's probably really good at Tony Hawk and Guitar Hero, but that's not the same as like skateboarding and playing guitar. I mean, is that, do you think that that generation is moving more? Because I also just watched Rogan's show, the new one where they have Kurzweil on and Duncan and they're talking about downloading your consciousness and the singularity and all that stuff. I mean, do you think that it's going to get people aren't just going to, are not going to be able to identify with these kind of like physical acts in the future or just, I don't know, like... Maybe I just get too wrapped up in that stuff, but that's really been on my mind a lot, I guess. I mean, it's it's something to it's something to worry about, I guess, if uh if people are becoming more and more removed from themselves in general, if the if it's if we're leading towards like the next big spiritual crisis or something, you know. Um but in general, I'm of the uh the persuasion that things actually never really change that much, you know, that teenagers in Stand By Me or like, you know, some image of the 50s would have gone off on each other and been just as foul-mouthed and idiotic, you know, and just like totally shallow about you're you're not being the right kind of person like you ought to change you know and and you should stand within these boundaries to be cool you know or whatever that's never changed you know i really don't think in 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 that way like the the brain chemistry that we have generally as we grow up it is still kind of just follows the same trajectory i think it's a different question maybe to ask about societal values as they change and become maybe like i'm not sure i didn't see their conversation but like as as life becomes more virtual and all of all of that stuff that's like a maybe a, a slightly different conversation but a teenager like talking shit on the internet about a guy who falls down that's not new right you know right. what i mean yes that is definitely true I mean, that's like the oldest, funniest thing when you're 11, see an old man fall down. That's hilarious. You know? <laughs> we talk about this a lot on the podcast is like 
the comment section of websites and it's like to me like whenever i'm like feeling good about humanity click on like any youtube video and i'm just like oh my god who are like is everyone this racist like is the world really like like and who's doing this and like it's really really it brings out this weird aspect of humanity to me where it's like okay to say stuff you would never say to someone in real life yeah i i think the only comfort I guess if you want to get down to the fun, some fundamental issues, the things that you can control within your life, you know, that actually matter is like, you know, there's, there's different roles you can, you can take up in, in the culture and like, uh, being a total, just like a, a complete consumer grade human being that like accepts that they don't want to, change anything or really join the force of, of, of creativity in the universe. Like, and just, they would like to just sit on their couch with their hands in like a bag of Cheetos and just watch the world go by, you know, and, and kind of buy things that other people make, you know, and, and check out the new trailer for the new Batman, you know, or whatever. It's like that, that as a metaphor is, where they've put their life and 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 when they do die and their life flashes before them um they'll just see a bunch of like trailers for Ernest goes to camp and whatever you know whatever but they they never fundamentally wanted to join the force of like creativity they never wanted to 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 open in a sense like you said about music like open themselves to actual exploration so when you think about that culture, um, and I don't mean that when I see it, I just get this lofty feeling or anything, but you, <laughs> right. you have to return to the fundamental uh, tenets of like what's actually important about your life, what you can control and what and what makes you happy is that, you know, you don't want to become that. You don't want to be part of that and you don't want to put your life energy there and just observe other people living. And, and in a sense the comment section is metaphorically an observation of what other people do, you know? So ultimately by definition, that's like your life has gone down the drain. You know I mean? You're wasting your fucking life, you know? How does that happen though? <laughs> Shit. I mean, I've talked to so many people where they just have no, um, no shame with just saying like, like I, I know I'm a consumer. That I that I don't know why is I find that kind of shocking. Like, like, like you know, like you you know that you have nothing to say to other people. It's that simple for you, you know. Like, I I, I just hope that I could never be cool with with sitting there and just acknowledging something like that. And I feel like I feel like. When you're a kid, you like dream really big and you have all these ideas about what's possible to do. You turn on the TV and you see Paul McCartney like singing a simple pop song for the Queen or something. And you just think, I could do that. And you technically you you could, but at some point something internal says... I'm not going to do that. I'm going to watch it on TV. 
and I'm going to enjoy this. This is really enjoyable. It's like, it's like your source of happiness. You start to realize, I think, that you're, you're totally fine with deriving gratification externally, like from, from, from other things. Because I think some people are just so fucking happy, uh, with, with, such petty bullshit, you know? And so if their brain chemistry is functioning that well, if they're like, man, these new shoes made me that fucking happy, then that's a bad sign, you know? Like an artist doesn't grow up thinking that. An artist is totally focused on something that, um, well, first of all, a lot of dissatisfaction that leads to wanting something to you know, wanting to make something look different, make their life feel different. You know, they're hell-bent on a form of transformation or like making something that can change their own mind or excite themselves, you know. And and so at some point, there's got to be some spiritual fork in the road there. I think as your child, you you assume you are capable. And then at some point, you you give up on some some of those ideas, you know. No, I think that that's totally true. But it's interesting for, I feel like me and you probably have a lot of the similar tastes, but sometimes when people are talking about a new trailer, some TV show, whatever, I sometimes feel like I'm like, I'm missing out on this cultural dialogue. Like I have nothing to contribute to this and not because I want to be like, I don't, I don't watch that, you know, not like I feel like I'm better or more intellectual, but I just feel like they're speaking another language and I just can't bring anything to the conversation. Yeah, I never feel bad. <laughs> well, I don't because I, I think of myself as like uh, kind of anti-humanist in that way, you know, because I think it was, I don't remember if I was like 17 or 18, but I was reading um, some book I'd picked up off my girlfriend's floor. I, I want to say it was Sartre's uh, Existentialism and Human Emotions or something, and it and it although it sounds lofty, it's pretty like harsh, funny, like he's mo he mocks society constantly in this way that's, it's pretty funny. I, I can't say I can recommend it to everybody, but nausea and that, like he, he's always talking about how absurd, um, what everybody's doing with their, with their time and with their attention, which I mean, is the, that's exact when you turn on your TMZ, like it's, it's like a perfect illustration of, of this, this sentiment that, but so it's like a type of humanism. He, he said something like, you know, these common, the common temperament is to like see a plane in the sky and have these, this, this certain feeling of, of humanism, like, uh, like we did that, you know, this, this point of pride, like you are, constantly impressed with the the feats of human beings you know and and that's definitely that like oh have you seen the new trailer though have you seen that like this is constant i'm impressed with special effects in a movie kind of attitude it's like it's just so it's just so clear to me that the other part of the equation is put that on one side and then have like an equal sign and the other part of the equation would be doing nothing with your life. You know what I mean? Because you, you, you have no sense of dissatisfaction to drive you towards changing anything. And that just seems like a very, very clear equation. You know, if you don't 
have any complaints. Like, why would you stand up and put your foot down about anything? You know, why do you wear your Martin Luther King shirt? Like, fucking be like that, you know? Like, why why buy it? Right. You know? Sports are always weird to me in that sense, too, where it's like people get so... And I'm like, none of these people are from this city. Like, you know, like, it's so... I don't know. It's so interesting to me. Like, you'll be so passionate about something you have no control over. Yeah. Have you seen that uh, Chomsky movie? It's like the manufacturing... Consent? Yeah, yeah, exactly. No, I remember the book. I had the book in college. I probably read like four pages of it. That's the thing about his... Yeah, yeah his books, they're kind of <laughs> going to sit there on your nightstand. But watch the movie because it, it's really fast and kind of like the sentiments are pretty... Uh, they're pretty um, sort of distilled to these little moments. And there's just, there's, I mean, I don't think I go through a week of my life without this one moment flashing in my mind. And you'll really love this one moment. It's just slow motion shots of people in the stadium of like, I guess it's a basketball game or a football game. And they all have their big foam number one fingers and and they all have their faces painted and it's just these slow motion shots of just kind of their emotional vague field that they exist in you know as they kind of just stare at the scoreboard and shit and uh he's just kind of slowly musing on like you know that it's really the perfect place for for the powers that be to have you in, you know, to spend all of your mental energy memorizing statistics and and rooting for your team and getting on your fantasy thing, you know, whatever. Clearly, I mean, whether you like it or not, it doesn't, It everybody entertains themselves, you know, with something and everybody should have forms of escape, no problem at all, but it definitely rings right into some 1984, you know, template that you would you would be using all of your life energy and pointing it at an arbitrary function that has nothing to do with actual reality, that it's actually a game. We call it a game and that's what you do with your mind, you know? That's When it becomes too central, it becomes really, really frightening, I think. You're right. <laughs> I mean... What do you, do you think like that's where we're headed kind of as a culture? Cause it seems like that consumerism and those ideas are so kind of prevalent. And I feel like with all this NSA stuff, it's like everything is under surveillance and everything's being watched and we're being kind of maybe goaded in a certain direction. Or do you feel like, um, that human spirit will kind of find its way, I guess, in a sense. Yeah. I, t- I tend to, I always come back to things not really, changing much in the in the some scientific way that you know nothing can be created or destroyed you know that the spirits you know when when a when a a monk and a nun die on the other side of the world it doesn't mean that there will never be a monk or a nun's spirit you know or or their intelligence or their value system is gone and erased i mean it it seems like uh although a tibetan culture you know like could 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 fade away and die into the background it just seems like our uh the rhythm of of life will it will have the pendulum has to swing back so there is there's enough intelligence in the world even though it's 
brand new intelligence being born into kind of an ahistorical context nowadays. I mean, it will find its bearings and it will instinctually reject oppression and it will, um, it will find a new way to uphold the kind of ancient um, stances that, that were, I mean, you know, it's not like, it's not like all has ever been really lost looking back, you know, it's, I think maybe environmentally we have a lot to worry about things that we can't control, you know, but it'll, it'll be too late for that when it happens anyway, we'll all just look at each other. Like it's so embarrassing that we're just another, you know, petty chapter in a, in a book that we couldn't do anything about it. It, you know, that's, that is embarrassing. <laughs> oh my God. This is going to be a really high note to kind of end this podcast on. Um, well, we'll probably see each other again. I, I assume if we go to the same, if we go to the same shows or anything, or I'll definitely get you in. I'm playing two shows in the next couple of months here, which is really irregular actually. If you want to come to Grail's Lilacs and Champagne at St. Vitus. And then I think Lilacs and Champagne is doing something that hasn't been announced yet in October. It's like kind of a big festival in Red Hook that's supposed to be awesome. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. We've had two of the owners of Vitus on this podcast. Cool. So, yeah, definitely. And Grail's has a new record coming out? We do. I brought it for you. Oh, awesome. Um, Thank you. Yes. It, it's... Uh, it's a series called Black Tar Prophecies that's sort of um it's a it's kind of like an alternate methodology or something that we we put ourselves into uh, uh making home recordings and twisting them until they are just uh there's it's meant to not really be like a band, you know. It's meant to be more imaginative like you could just do anything you want to do that you don't have to, you know, worry about presenting it that way on stage or anything like that. It's like it's supposed to be like a a really free mode for the band. So that's a compilation coming out of those different volumes of us trying to break any molds we've set up, you know, if that makes any sense. It does definitely. I mean, was that... It seems like you, like what you were saying earlier about being happy and feeling like needing to change that. And maybe this might be a little tenuous connection, but like setting up this kind of that new kind of process on purpose to kind of make things more challenging, I'm sure. Cause you're not used to it. I mean, do you like that idea of sort of challenging yourself and maybe stepping outside of what's instinctual or what's normal to you in a sense? Well, I don't know if like, this was like my, my destiny to to have gone through this very specific trajectory of becoming um of of ending up with like this weird kind of career that I have which is sort of one where I I do ultimately get to do whatever I want and then I can put one of the names on it or something so um I don't know if that was destiny that like I had to go through a lot of hard uh, periods and then like I would be awarded that or if it's like it would have happened early on anyway or later on you know I'm not sure if but I think that my personality would have would have fought for and and looked for total 
freedom in whatever situation I would have ended up in in an alternate universe. So um, in, in a sense, I think, you know, the most desirable thing for any artist and I think pretty much across the board would be like a type of total freedom where you were left to your own in kind of like this hermetic way. And you are allowed to to totally melt yourself down and and kind of investigate the t- true potentiality of just like anything you could anything you could think of. And you know, most people who are on stage and and out there, actors or you know, they certainly they don't want that necessarily. You know, because they're kind of happier being. I guess some form of cog, you know, or whatever in a bigger machine that they don't necessarily need that kind of heavy spotlight or something. But I think that true artists are like, are, are born to criticize, you know, everything around them and then sort of, uh, destroy everything that is holding them into, um, worldviews that are just your basic, restrictive law abiding you know kind of uh modes of 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 existing within you know basically just following all rules and and behaving yourself and so it's that's the dream you know is to be given the ability to like do whatever you want and then it's on you you know to do a good job <laughs> it's it's within your own universe that you have to refine yourself and, you know, have discipline. Things that I think come innately in human beings, you know, like, like Kropotkin or, or like, like people believing that people are just good. Like, like we're sort of saying that, that, that these things won't go away and that you can trust, um, the universe and the rhythm of it, that you don't necessarily have to worry about, you know, particular the you know the new the surveillance or you don't have to worry about necessarily any form of evil dominating because mathematically maybe it, there's no way that it it actually can you know unless your your definition of human beings is is actually so is so haunted and and horrible that you believe you you ought to live in that kind of paranoia i mean we all sit on a fence we all spend half of our time complaining and worrying and then half of our time, you know, escaping that state of mind. It's just where do you want to be on that continuum, you know? How paranoid do you want to be about someone coming to get you and destroying your life? What are you doing so wrong, you know? But, you know, those questions are real and good. It's just how much time do you want to spend in the trenches, like, studying evil? At some point, I think evil is in your bloodstream and and the more you like focus on it the more it it takes a hold of your life or if that makes any sense uh that gandhi story was insane and yet again i'm sorry i missed it yeah i i like every podcast to include a story about floating past dead babies while doing psychedelics yeah uh that's that's what everyone wants to hear i think pretty much um but yeah that that is such a crazy story. And also check out um, 
Check out the book he was talking about. It should be out by the time you hear this, I think, or coming out soon, called The Answer to the Riddle is Me, with that guy David who went to India with Duncan and Emil because uh, all the stories that those guys have told about that stage of their lives and that trip is just is super interesting to me, and I don't really even know any of them, and it's still super interesting. <laughs> so The sign of a good writer. I don't true. know you, and I find this cool. Yeah, totally. And check out all of Emil's bands. Holy Sons are great. Grails is great. Ohm. Super heavy, super awesome. Um, Check out Jonah's new show. Check out my new web series. uh, Sound advice. Sound advice. Check it out. Hilarious. Above average. Thank you, guys. And uh, my band, United Nations, may be on tour when you're listening to this. Uh, We don't really have a a website that's updated. Or any dates to announce. Or any dates. Check out our Twitter page. Uh, I think it's the official Twitter slash the official UN. We've been posting stuff on there. And... uh, we may be in Florida. Hopefully I'm in Florida when you're hearing this. Oh, cool. Yeah. I won't be Hopefully in I'm watching Knapsack after our show. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you can check us out on Facebook slash going off track, twitter.com slash going off track. Uh, I think you're nailing it. Going off track.com. Basically anything, <laughs> just type in going off track and either you'll find us or that thing doesn't exist. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Although certain people do say, hey, do you want to buy goingofftrack.org and goingofftrack.net? And the answer is no. No, we don't need don't it. Don't care. I do kind of want to get goingofftrack.xxx. Yeah. Because that is out there. Or goingofftracks. Are we going to do a, an X-rated version? No, that's that's the funny part. We're not. Whenever, well, that would be if we ever do go to video, it'll be rated X. Yeah, completely. Obviously. Yeah, because yeah, we don't wear clothes and it's just it's a... My giant raging just a bunch coffee of, cup. Just a big bunch of boners here. <laughs> coffee cup <laughs> wow i've heard tin can I built like a coffee cup baby grab this mug honey the handle <laughs> <laughs> you should get that looked at